0: Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this majestic prophecy that really comes uh, in the midst of uh, several chapters that are about the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And we have uh, much to enjoy and discover and investigate and refresh ourselves on in these two dynamic and powerful verses, written some 700 plus years before the child would be born in the midst of really a dual prophecy. And it's exciting stuff and it's hopeful and it's encouraging, but it's also challenging because of the condition of Israel when it's written, and we can't help but think of our own country and the world as we ponder these verses. And so, Lord, we pray that the next 45 minutes or so would be set aside. We'd put aside all the worries, distractions, and focus on a manger, a child that is born to us, a son that is given to us. We know that it didn't end just with the manger scene as beautiful As that is, when angels sang on that Bethlehem night, we know Jesus grew to be a man and he died on a cross and rose from the dead in the very history in which we live. And this is the reality of what the Bible says, that God came on a rescue mission, God with us. And Lord, I pray that where there is need of refreshment or new faith in someone's heart or... Maybe there's uh, some that have gotten away from you and just life has thrown them a lot of curveballs and a lot of difficulties and they've kind of lost their way. I pray you'd bring us back to that hope of Christmas and everything that it means to us. We love you, we thank you, and we pray you bless the time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, oh, you're already seated. I already told you to sit down, so you don't have to be seated. But I'm glad you're here. Merry Christmas to you. And last week, Joe Kelly, uh, sometimes second service comes up, and I don't know what order I did things in, so forgive me. Anyway, Joe Kelly taught us last week on the light that came into the world, this great prophecy of Jesus coming to the areas of Galilee and Naphtali, and the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. Those regions, as we learned last week, if you were with us, in the northern part of Israel— were devastated by the Assyrian forces. And the Assyrian forces came in, and they took the northern tribes. And at the time that Isaiah writes, he writes a prophecy about what's coming, and he writes it to a divided nation. As we learned last week, or were reminded of, ten of the northern tribes, they moved up to the north, and two remained in the south. And the nation was actually at civil war. It was truly a nation divided. If you read anything on the book of Isaiah, you'll find out that scholars call the alliance in the north the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. And Ephraim was known as the capital of the northern part of Israel. And they allied themselves with Syria. And so they began to set their target sites on Judah. And Judah was also a part of Israel, but was separated. And you had the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and two different sets of kings. The kings in the north were really wicked, and they seemed to be always kind of held up in idolatry. And the south had a good king, and then they would have a bad king. They'd have a good king, and they'd have a bad king. And when you read the Old Testament, you read the story of God's people, that God's people would move away from God. They would get comfortable, cushy. They kind of would embrace the ways of the nations around them. And then God would discipline his people. Oftentimes through a foreign invader, as frightening as that is, He would often use foreign armies like Assyria and Babylon to get his people's attention. And the prophets would come to the people before God would judge or discipline and they would warn the people. They would say, repent of your idolatrous ways, turn back to the Lord and he will forgive and he will heal your land. But many, many times Israel did not pay attention. Isaiah quoted in the New Testament several times says their hearts had become dull, their Eyes did not see. Their ears were plugged to the truth. They had so many layers of distraction and other ideas on their hearts that they had lost their way. And if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, there's an incredible occurrence in Isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet who wrote these 66 chapters, his name means the Lord is salvation, He got a vision of the Lord in the temple. Do you remember? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the angels sang in praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And a question came from God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And remember Isaiah's response? Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Isaiah didn't say send him, send her, send somebody else. He was captivated by the glory of God, enthralled with a vision which John 12 tells us he saw the glory of Christ. And he got his marching orders. And he says in Isaiah 6, How long, Lord, how long do you want me to prophesy to the nation? And the the Lord gave him a dismal report. He said, until destruction comes that I've been prophesying, and you're going to go to these pe- this people, and they're not going to listen to your message. You're going to show up, and you're going to proclaim the truth, and they're just not going to listen to you. And in the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 7, the king of the time, and one thing I would encourage you to do, if you're looking for some devotional reading, read Isaiah chapter 6 through 9 together. And I think that you'll see these pieces come into place. Because the prophecies of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 all go together. They're all, they all have a historical basis to them. In chapter 7, a quick highlight, because we'll study this on, a, on Christmas Eve. Ahaz, the king of the time in Judah in the south, is inspecting the water supply. He's got threats coming at him everywhere, and in ancient warfare, if you could cut off the water supply of your enemy, you could devastate them, right? They'd have no water, and they'd be done. So he's investigating the water supply, and God calls Isaiah to come out to Ahaz, the king. And Isaiah says to him, God wants you to ask for a sign. God is with you, and he wants you to ask him for a sign. And Ahaz, sounding very religious and pious, says, no, I won't ask the Lord for a sign, nor will I test the Lord. Now, that sounds good until you realize who Ahaz was. And I want you to take a turn with me in your Bible to 2 Chronicles, where you can take a look at this guy. This is 2 Chronicles 28. So you have the books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and 2 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, okay? You want 2 Chronicles chapter 28. I want to show you the king of the time. His name is Ahaz. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1. You might note in your Bible, if you have dates in your Bible, this is about 735 BC. So that gives us a a date there. Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, 1, was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, that's there in the south. And he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. He had come from the line of David. But he walked in the ways, 28-2, of the kings of Israel, those in the north. He also made molten images of the Baals, false gods. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he burned his sons in fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. God told the people of Israel that he's going to make the land of Canaan, the promised land, available largely because the Canaanites were involved in abominable practices. And in Deuteronomy 18, God said to his people, I do not want you to duplicate the detestable practices of those nations. I'm driving them out for what they do. And one of the things that they did is they offered their children, they burned their children alive, in some cases, apparently from what we learn from history, to false gods, to appease the false gods, For largely blessings on the nation and fertility blessings. They sacrificed their babies. Really sad. King Ahaz, in order to try to get blessings for himself or whatever his motivation was, did the same to his own children. Very, very sad. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places for, to false gods, on the hills and under every green tree. Wherefore, verse 5, the Lord His God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, that's Syria, to the north of Israel, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus, the capital of Syria. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel there in a civil war, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, Notice, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Skip down to verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. He wouldn't look to God. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ihalon, Gedareth, and Soko, with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah, 19, because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tilgath-Pilneser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. He looked to this man, but this man didn't help him. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and, out of, and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. He even took the holy vessels and it didn't help. Now in the time of his distress, the same, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, Because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, the temple, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord, and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods, and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Back to Isaiah chapter 9. When Isaiah is commissioned to go to Ahaz, he says to Ahaz, I want you to ask for a sign. God essentially has given you a blank check, and Ahaz, sounding religious, says, nope. I won't ask, I won't test the Lord. And Isaiah says, okay, if you won't ask for a sign, the Lord will give you a sign. Remember what the sign was? Behold, a virgin will be with child, Isaiah seven fourteen, will bear a child, and they shall call his name, what's the name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. You're not with God, but God is with you, says Isaiah to Judah. Now here's what happened. The northern kingdom was taken in 722 BC, devastated and and demolished. And some people ran down to the south. And Judah had four attacks, my understanding of world history, come their way. But each time, even though they were hurt by the attacks, they were never completely sacked. Because there was a supernatural power protecting the house of David, if you will. Because God had made a promise in 2 Samuel 7. That someone from the line of David would sit on the throne forever. And so there was a greater power working than Assyria, a power that could not be stopped. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you, brothers and sisters. If you know Jesus, he is on your side. He's even working all things together for good. And so even though Ahaz sounded religious, as I mentioned, he refused and God gave a promise. A promise in the midst of rebellion, a promise in the midst of idolatry, a promise in the midst of terrible sins that were happening in in the nation. A nation that had largely turned away from God. And I have to tell you, right now the reports on U.S. spirituality are pretty dismal. Experts that are doing polls right now are saying that church attendance in America in the last 10 years is down 10%. That is a significant number compared to past years. It's a very significant drop. And I just read an article this morning where millennials, basically in their mid-20s till their late 30s, four out of 10 millennials are saying that they have no religious affiliation any longer. America is on a slippery slope to rejecting God and I'm reading a book right now uh, done by years of research in America that are the pollsters are saying that if trends continue the way they are, thousands of Christian churches will close in America in the next 20 years. Thousands of Christian churches. And the, those who are writing the article say, are saying that the population growth compared to church attendance is is so out of whack that churches, small churches, are just simply not sustainable. And it'll come down to a point where they'll either have to pay a pastor or pay for an air conditioner or some facility bill. That's, the, the pollsters are saying that's the trend. And I've been telling you from this pulpit, if you look at Europe, and you look at all the empty church buildings in Europe, don't be surprised that a culture that decides to move away from God will have thousands of empty church buildings that will be converted into other uses. This is what's happening right now in America. Do you know that 9 out of 10 churches in America have 350 attendants or less? There's only 1 in 10 churches in America that have 350 or more in Sunday worship attendance. And so what's happening now is churches that are smaller, averaging about 75 people or somewhere around there, will begin to close their doors because they just won't simply, simply won't be able to sustain their ministry. That's America. Now I hope that that will inform your prayers a little bit more. I hope that will cause you and me to say, Oh Lord, what can we do? How can we change our hearts? I I don't want to look at someone else. I'm going to look at me in my house. I'm going to ask the question, as for me in my house, are we serving the Lord? Am I trying to share this hope of Christmas and the second coming of Jesus and all that it means to my culture, to my sphere of influence at work? I know it's not politically correct to stand up for your faith in our day, but who cares? Who do you want to please? See, this is is part of what's gotten us in trouble in the church is that the church has been so muzzled by the culture we're afraid to preach the truth anymore. But this is what we need. And here's the good news, that despite all of our rebellion and even our own hearts, how we can be apathetic and prone to wander right in the midst of all this rebellion and a king that burns incense to false gods and won't... Uh, look to God. He won't look to Emmanuel. God says, a child will be born to us. Isaiah 9, 6. A son will be given to us. You know, don't, don't you s- often see that at the darkest times in our life, that's when the light shines the brightest? Oftentimes when, when we realize we've been kind of going This way without God, we look again to the light and he's so gracious and so good that even in the midst of all this darkness and impending discipline and judgment, a prophecy like this is given. 700 years plus before it happened, a child, would you note in your Bible, Isaiah 9-6 will be born to us. The emphasis in Hebrew is on the child, but it's also letting us know that he'll come for us. He's going to be one of us. That is the Christmas story. God with us. Emmanuel, he becomes human and he becomes a child. I read through and did a little research again on the use of child in the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And you'll see the word child over and over and over again. It's a child that will come into the fray, come into world history to answer all that terrorizes us. He will be our hopes and dreams. You know, in past times, God uh, appeared in Theophanies and what we call Christophanies. He appeared as a man uh, to certain individuals. Why did he not do that on that Bethlehem night? Why didn't he just come as a grown man? Why didn't he just come in that way? Why come so vulnerable? Why be born in a manger, in, in a cave perhaps, or, or something like that? Why in those conditions would he come? Because he came to enter into our pain. He came to fulfill the law. A little baby will be the answer. Of course he will grow to be that man. A child will be born to us. Would you notice the second part? A son will be given to us. I can't help but think, even though there's some humanity in the word son, of course, a son given to us, I can't help but think of God the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who gave the son God the Father that so loved you and me, He gave His Son. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son. Galatians 4. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those of us who were under the law, who you know, know in our hearts that we have not kept the Ten Commandments in word, deed, motive, what we failed to do. He came on a rescue mission. This child will bring us light and hope. That's why it's good to celebrate Christmas. That baby made the angels sing. I think it's okay for us to celebrate his arrival. Do you not agree? But we also look with hope to a second advent, a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it won't be about a cross, and it won't be about sin, because he's paid for our sin. The next time he comes, he's coming to rescue his people and set up his kingdom. And that's kind of where this prophecy is headed. This child, this light of the world will be born to us. This son will be given to us. He is the gift of God. The angel said to them, don't be afraid, Luke 2, 10 and 11 For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is God's gift. That's why it's so significant each time we get to celebrate a Christmas with friends and family and church family that we don't forget what God did in history and what he's going to do again because the world conditions of his second advent are going to be similar to world conditions at his first coming. There was silence, no prophetic voice for 400 years until John the Baptist came on the scenes in the wilderness saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Amen. This is what God has promised and as Jesus fulfilled scores of prophecy about his first coming, he's coming again a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and that son is coming again to judge the living and the dead. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. He's inspired songs that have lasted millennia because he's the hope of the world. He's the greatest Christmas gift there ever could be. When Simeon was in the temple area and Mary and Joseph have brought the baby Jesus to fulfill What the law said that every male born was to be circumcised the eighth day. Simeon, whose name means hearkening or to hear, had been promised that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he waited and he waited and he waited. And finally Mary and Joseph came with the baby and Simeon took the child into his arms and he said, now, Lord, this is Luke two twenty nine. thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You know, Jesus' name means the Lord is salvation. Whenever you say the name Jesus, that's what you're saying. The Lord saves. And in that baby salvation had come to the world. And Simeon took him and he celebrated him. And he says, You've prepared, uh, Thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him by Simeon. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. What an interesting word from Simeon to Mary. This child will be a sign to be opposed, and many are going to rise because of him. Many are going to fall because of him, and he's going to, he's going to experience great opposition. In fact, a sword is going to pierce your soul, Mary. Wow. And Simeon blessed them and gave this word. That's, if you want to look at those verses, Luke two twenty. Five through about 34 he's assigned to be opposed there's a new line of christmas cards that have come out poking fun at the christmas season premier news reports that a british company called love layla in trying to be humorous at christmas has offended many with their cards that read the following they say mary just needs to admit that she slept with someone else It has a picture of, I'm trying to enlarge it, but you're not going to be able to see it, uh, a little caricature of the Holy Family. And it says that Mary just needs to admit that she slept with somebody else. A new line of cards trying to be humorous. Do you know that in John chapter 8, the religious leadership of Jesus' day said these words to him? We were not born of fornication. We have one, one Father, God. Do you know that even the religious leadership accused Jesus of being born out of a wedlock or an adulterous relationship or a relationship outside of marriage? There's nothing new under the sun. We're just poking fun. They go on to say, the new cards have sayings like, Mary just needs to admit she slept with someone else. Sorry, your December birthday is overshadowed by a bloke that wore socks with sandals. They say Christmas isn't just about religion, it's also about having fun and enjoying ourselves, the company said in a statement. We're just trying to be original and funny by catering to all different types of humor. We don't set out to be deliberately or to deliberately upset anyone, okay? References to Mary also upset Catholics, as Australian disc jockey Kyle Sandalins found out a few months ago when he said on the air, Mary was impregnated behind the camel shed. I thought Mary was Jesus' girlfriend, but apparently it was his mother, he said on air. And the mother lied, obviously, and told everyone, Nah, I got pregnant by a magical ghost. Calling those who believe the Bible story dumb, he went on to comment that you might believe everything that was written down 2,000 years ago to be absolutely accurate. Good on you, but you're dumb. You're as dumb as dog blank. He later apologized for his comments but that's our world, right? People who mock the idea of the sacred, that God actually would enter into time and space, that a child would be born to us, a son would be given to us. The Gospel of John has these words in John 20:31, these these words of the book of John have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I am not shocked by the opposition to Jesus. It's been the story of 2,000 years of world history, and it shouldn't shock you. But the question for us as believers is, what do we do in this time in which we live? How do we make known the hope of the gospel in a way that shows the love and the truth of Christ? How do we remind ourselves that what's at stake is life in his name? Because he who has the Son has this life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have this life. That's what the Bible says. It's either true or it's not. Jesus either is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father, or he's not. Now, what is amazing is that as this prophecy unfolds, we get a little bit about the child, the Son born to us, and then one of the first things that's said about him is that the government will rest on his shoulders. We're going to get a little bit about who he is, his nature, and what he will accomplish in this prophecy. I want to show you what the culture was like at this time. Isaiah 5, just a few pages back. Take a look. Government, religious leaders, there was a ton of corruption. This will give you a small taste of what was going on. Isaiah 5, 20. It says, Woe to those, 520, who call evil good and good evil. "...who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe," 521, "...to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, And dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And on this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. That is, it's not over yet because of what's going on. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. This one, this child that will grow to be that man and will come a second time. He will shoulder the responsibility of government. All I have to do is say the word government. And I'm sure for most of you, it probably leaves a bad taste in your mouth. What is now going on with our government is so sad, so divisive, so uh, partisan. It is just a ridiculous sideshow. And right now, people who are supposed to represent us in government, I hope you remember that, we have a representative government. They're supposed to be working for us spend millions of dollars pointing fingers in both directions and getting nothing done for the country. And by the way, we've had this going on since this country began. We've had a divided nation, but, but it's gotten worse, I think, over time. And now we've left our foundations and now we don't even know what we believe anymore. Part of the problem in the partisanship and in worldviews and what's going on in campuses across the U.S. is that we don't know what our worldview is anymore. We don't know where we should look to for our ideas or for our direction. And many people think the government will solve their problems. By the way, government is God's idea. God made it up. God instituted it. And in Romans 13, he said government exists for two primary reasons. To promote good and to stem the tide of evil. That's the purpose of good and godly government. And when this child comes and comes ultimately in his second advent, he will shoulder the responsibility of the government. The the government will be on his shoulders Hebrew scholars say the word for shoulder, shechem, is a word that means the place between the, the shoulders or the neck. It's, it's he'll bear the weight of it. And there's no doubt that leading anything can be a heavy responsibility. Amen. I mean, imagine if you were the president for one day. You, wherever you stand politically right now, it's a tough spot to be in, right? Any kind of leadership, whether it's national or local, can be a tough burden You could be a leader in a church, a leader in a company, a leader in your family, and you feel the burdens, you bear the weight of that. And this child who will come will shoulder the responsibility, but he will be the ultimate governor, amen? Because he will rule in righteousness. We'll never have to question what he's up to. We'll never have to wonder if there's a con or a game or a sham going on. He'll rule in righteousness, praise the Lord. And I know, uh, you can clap if you want, yeah. <laughs> See, in Isaiah 53, which Joe pointed out to us last Sunday, when it says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, that, that leads us into government buildings. It leads us into living rooms. It leads us into the office. It leads us down into the streets. It's, this is what the Messiah came to do, to rescue us from ourselves. And by the way, We've had plenty of time to attempt to figure this out. Would you agree? We have thousands of years of world history to prove that man can't seem to get it together. We have more technology, more at our fingertips, and we still have the age-old problems right here of the heart. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that this child, this Savior, this Messiah will bring light into our darkness. His name, and it interests me that after it talks about the government, it says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. For those of you who are taking notes, Hebrew scholars say that wonderful could be translated wonder-filled, and the word wonder emphasizes supernatural qualities. In fact, when uh, the... Annunciation of Samson's birth came to his parents. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we, when your words come to pass, we may honor you? Judges 13, 17, and 18. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? See, wonderful has the idea of wonder filled, filled with supernatural insight. He'll be a wonderful counselor. Jesus has the best ideas. Do you agree? See, he gave us ten commandments and then he just simply put them into two. Just love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't that solve all of our problems? Those are pretty good ideas, don't you think? Ah, I don't know if we need those ideas. we got to get them off the wall, those commandments, you know. That's what our culture says. And interestingly enough, Back in the day, here's what was happening in Israel. Take a look at Isaiah 8, verse 19. When they say to you, 8, 19, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? They were getting involved in seances and necromancy Seeking the dead for their answers, using mediums for consultation or counsel. What should I do? Who should I marry? Will I meet someone tall, dark, and handsome? And they went to the lady, and you pay her, you know, $29.99, three easy installments, and, oh, she goes into her thing. Oh, this is what I see in your future. Oh, oh, let me look at the lines in your hand. oh. And the people ate it up because that's what the nations around them did. They said, never mind the law of God, the inspired word of God. Let's, Let's talk to this lady who goes into this trance. And they consulted her. Notice, and it says, to the law and the testimony, 820, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They have no light in them. Don't listen to them. But the people loved it. And they ate it up. And they didn't consult their God, but this one is a wonderful counselor. Has he become your counselor? Do you know you have a counselor who lives in you if you're a Christian? And he's given you a whole book of counsel right here the inspired word of God. And people say, out oh, of that Bible. We're not going to talk about that. Are you going to a Bible study on Friday and I did A Bible boy, a Bible. Now, wait a minute. Right? And this, this is what happens. Don't you have any of your own ideas, Bible boy? This is the inspired word of God. And by the way, people who think that they have new ideas, all of their, old, their ideas are just old repackaged ideas anyway. Most of them don't know it. But that's all it is. The one thing that we've learned from history <laughs> is that we don't learn from history. <laughs> right? People like, say, oh, we can do better than that Bible. We'll, we'll go over here. We'll, we'll seek this out. We'll do this over here. And God says, oh, you will? Well, when you're in trouble, the next time, call out to one of them and see if they rescue you. See if they give you manna in the wilderness. See if they give you water from the rock. See if they can tell you about the future. See if they'll save your back. Good luck. You want them? And isn't it ironic that the southern kingdom got overtaken by Babylon, a nation steeped in thousands and thousands of false gods. You want idolatry? Okay, I'll let you go to their land for 70 years. You can see how you like it. Didn't like it. This baby who will become the man, the Bible says he's a wonderful counselor, supernatural. When the enemies of Jesus heard him speak, some, some group came back to the leaders and they said, hey, we told you to arrest him. And they said, never did a man speak like he speaks. He spoke with supernatural authority. People said of Jesus, where did he get his learning? Where did he go to school? Where did he get this authority? No one ever spoke like this man. He spoke words of life. He would speak words of life to people in desperate situations. He would speak healing to people. And his words often unmasked the motives of hearts, right? He even knew what people were thinking. Wow. Supernatural. The living word became one of us. I was listening to a a teacher and he was saying, you know, when you think about what your words are, your words are basically the expression of your heart. They kind of reveal who you are. They reveal your being and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus' Word, He's the living Word, but He also expressed the heart of God. You read the Gospels, and you're blown away by Jesus, aren't you? I mean, sometimes I read the words of the Gospels, and I'm like, wow, Lord, did you really say that right there? Sometimes the apostles had to say, did you know you offended those people when you said that? And Jesus like, yeah, yeah, I know what I was saying. But they're blind, and if the blind lead the blind, somebody's going to fall into a pit. Don't worry about it. The disciples are like, wow, man. Supernatural wisdom and counsel. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He'll be a wonderful counselor, and he is. He's also called the mighty God. That's El Gabor in Hebrew. It, it means the God that God is a warrior. You know, they were looking, the king was looking to Assyria for help, and he had the best and greatest warrior on his side just waiting for him to ask for help. How many of you have read Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back on a white horse leading the hosts of heaven? It's a metaphorical picture, but it gives you an idea of the strength and power of Jesus. He's coming again. And when he comes, the Antichrist and his armies are going to try to fight Jesus. Come on, put it up, put him up, put him up. And Jesus is going to destroy him, get this, with the breath of his mouth and the appearing of his coming. Reminds me of the Lord of the Rings movies when Gandalf's coming down the hill and those terrible orcs are there and the light shines. Little Wizard of Oz for you. Anyway. He's the mighty God. He's the ultimate warrior. The Lord is a warrior. Exodus 15. The Lord is his name. He will fight for us. That's what the prophecy says. How about you just let God lead you? Let him fight your battles. Amen. I got it. No, I'm good. Then we come back with the black eye. Shiner, <laughs> bump, bump, bump on the head. See, he's the mighty God. Our Jehovah's Witness friends say, well, he's called mighty God, but not almighty. And they make a big deal of that. And they say that this means that Jesus is a lesser God because he, if you call Jehovah almighty and Jesus is called mighty, their argument is that makes a distinction between Jehovah and Jesus. But look in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 21. This is just for those of you who are engaging our Jehovah's Witness friends and trying to dialogue with them. 1021 says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to who? To the mighty God. That is Jehovah. You can look at the context of the previous verse. That's Yahweh. He's called the mighty God because Jesus, it's remarkable, but he is God. He's the second person of the triune God. And he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Look at this other description of him. He's called Everlasting Father. Some of your Bibles may say Father of Eternity. Uh, Hebrew scholars say that you could render it either way, or Everlasting Father. Write down in your notes or in your Bible, Micah 5.2, the prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem says, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's the everlasting Father, the Father of eternity. He rules it all, He holds it all together. And they also, scholars also say that you need to see in this, this title of Jesus, His fatherly care. That He's the everlasting Father in this sense, that He will always be there for you. Now, I've mentioned government. Let me mention uh, another. Plate in our society. It's fatherlessness. It's a huge issue right now in many communities. Kids growing up without a dad, without a father figure, without influence. We're also in a divorce culture, and I know that's probably impacted many of you. And so what ends up happening is you get a family divided, and, and a lot of us have daddy issues, right? A lot of us had our Fathers, leave us, but he is an everlasting father. Part of the meaning here is that he's a father who will never forsake you. He's a father that will never give up on you. He will always love you to the very end and throughout all eternity. He's the everlasting father. Isn't that good news? This is our God. See, the king is also our Abba. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Alistair Begg says, the human heart longs for endless love. Don't spurn that love. I know the world's full of disappointment. I know many of you have multiple hurts. And sometimes you wonder, is there any healing from that hurt? What does my Christian faith mean to that? It means everything. He's the everlasting Father, and then, Quickly, he's the prince of peace. Same Hebrew uh, root there for, uh, uh, we looked at something earlier that was connected to prince. He's the prince of peace. That word for peace there is shalom. Some of you have heard that before. Uh, Shalom is a word that means to be well, to be free from anxiety, to live a fulfilled life, to have harmony, to be happy, to be friendly. It speaks of welfare, health, prosperity, and peace. Dr. Seekin says in the Hebrew picture language, shalom means to destroy the authority that establishes chaos and to deal with root issues, close quote. Shalom means to be well, right here. At the core of your being. That's where God wants to work. He wants to deal with your root issues. How many of you like weed whackers? I like weed whackers. And with all the rain, isn't it amazing how the alien weeds grow the best in the rain? You want your grass to grow, but it's the weeds, and they look like they're from other planets. And I love the weed whacker. because, And whack, whack, whack. You can whack stuff. <laughs> and it's legal. And... Uh, but here's what I know. If I just whack the top of that weed, within a couple of days, that <laughs> thing's coming back, right? I got to deal with the root. But that's harder work because usually the weeds are prickly and you got to get on your hands and knees. And you got to wear a glove. And, you know, and, it's, and it's pull and it's pull and that thing fights back and pull. But shalom means Jesus wants to deal with your root issues. And that means sometimes when you hear the Bible taught, it's going to hit you right in the root. Not just whack the top of your problem. It's going to come right here. And you're going to go, and all God's people said, ouch, I feel you. But the good news is once the root is pulled out, the weed won't come back. You want to deal with your root issues? Let the Prince of Peace into the recesses of your heart that you have kept him at bay. Let him in. Say, Lord, search me and know me. I'm even afraid to pray that sometimes, but I know it's the best thing I can pray because I want him to work in the innermost being. I want him to be Prince there. Jesus said, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. John 14, 27. Don't be afraid. See, he's the prince of peace, and he gives peace. He himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. And there will be no end to the increase of his government, verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, that's what God promised, that that throne would last. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, that's how he's going to rule, and his rule will be from then on and forevermore. These are pointers to his second coming as well, where he'll establish his millennial reign, we might say at the end of this message, well, how do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that maybe with the deists, God didn't just wind up the universe and and go off on vacation and just let it go and say, good luck. We know because Jesus entered into our world. We know that God loves us because he entered into our pain. That's a big reason why I'm a Christian, by the way. It's because Jesus came into our pain and he's alive. And God is zealous for you and me, end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord. That means the passion, the burning passion of the Lord for his people, for souls, for the lost. It's his zeal that will accomplish this. He is zealous for you. He loves you. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he called you. And I know there's a, a bunch of stories in this room right now of when you were called. And I know for a lot of you, you were called At a time and place when you were in a bad spot. I can speak for myself. I was in a really bad place. A very dark place. I put on a good facade. I could fool people at the parties. I could kind of go with the flow. But in my soul, I knew there was darkness and emptiness. And you know what? God is so good. He allowed me through some relationships to be invited to church. I fought it for a while and I finally came. And all of a sudden, I heard the truth, and it was like a flood of light came into my soul. For, For me, that happened in the late 80s. And it's been over three decades now of an amazing journey with this God of light. He's so good. Through my ups and downs, through my times when I look at myself and say, God, how could you love someone like me? How do you let me speak on your behalf? (laughs) You know, there's times we all go through that. But his grace is so sufficient, so beautiful, so everlasting. This is who he is. And if you've not met him before, this would be a great time of the year to open your heart. If you've been away for a while, maybe you've kind of taken a left turn and and you kind of just decided, oh, I'm not going to really pay attention to my Bible, and not going to go to church, and maybe some of that, you're reaping some of that, here's the good news, he's never given up on you. He loves you. And he would just invite you to come home. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the precious people that have gathered on this Lord's Day. In this wonderful Christmas season of hope, you've given us this, idea of a season of hope to share with all of our friends and family, all of our church family. And I'm grateful that you are the hope of the world. I'm grateful that you entered into my darkness and showed me the light of Jesus. I pray for all the precious saints that are here who already know you, that their hearts would be refreshed and encouraged about this child who came to rescue us. Thank you that Jesus grew, died on that cross, shed his blood, knowing what he would have to do, and rose to defeat death, our mortal enemy, one that we all have to admit where we've got some hesitations and fears about our mortality, but thank you that Jesus came to defeat that as well. While ancient Israel worried about Assyria, and Syria, and Judah worried about Israel, You've come to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And you've done that. And we're just waiting for your second advent, Lord, with great anticipation. Thank you that you're the hope that we've longed for. And until you come for us, Lord, or we go to be with you, would you help us as your church to occupy until you come? Would you help us to be ambassadors of hope during this season? We were able to help with the Christmas outreach over 30 families. Thank you for that. Thank you for that expression of the gospel. Thank you for the generosity of this congregation. Thank you for the many ways they're reaching out right now, week to week, day to day. May you bless those efforts. I pray that many on Christmas Eve and even in the services before and after will come to faith in Christ, that there'll be a revival here in the Inland Empire. It would move to Southern California, to the state of California, and all over this nation and the world, Lord. We need it. And we know you're working in many different places in the world right now. Churches growing in the Middle East, in China. I heard that a statistic that the fastest growing churches are in Iran right now, which is amazing. And we know you're always at work, and we pray, Lord, that as we think about America. We think about our families. Think about things that are very personal to us that you do a new fresh work in our hearts. It would spill over and we would continue each day to rejoice in the hope of Christmas. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?